0: Heavenly Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who opens heaven to us and draws us into your eternal kingdom. May we please encounter him in the scriptures this morning. By the power of your Holy Spirit and in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would it really be good if every country in the world was a democracy? Really? Would it really be good if Amazon did start delivering to Somalia? Or if Keir Starmer's vision for Britain was somehow transplanted word for word to every culture and country in the world? It is actually important to ask questions like that. Because there are a lot of people, not just politicians, who are urging us forward towards something. And as long as that's never really defined... We'll just get swept up in moving towards some kind of vague better world. Because anything's better than what's happening now or what happened in the past. Quite a lot of the urging at the moment is driven by trying to reject the mistakes of the past. We mustn't be empire building colonial Victorians. That was bad. We mustn't export our cultures if we're best. Like all those missionaries who gave us the Anglican Communion. Detect the kind of irony there. Or, or the Cricket World Cup. You know, that was bad. All, teaching all these people to play cricket in the name of Queen Her Majesty or something. That was bad. There's a lot in school and the news about all the stuff we must not do. But in these same sources of information, sadly including schools, not because of the teachers, usually because of the national curriculum setters, there's a lot that seems an awful lot like stuff we said we'd never do again, like blatant propaganda and trying to unite around a common enemy. Despite assurances that we've left all that behind, try finding anything positive written about Russian or Israeli culture in the most respected news sources at the moment. And then there's the civil war in Yemen, in which Britain is now a combatant. I think everyone, including the people fighting, find it hard to see how that's going to do any good to the people living in Yemen, even with the best of intentions. We can't agree on the future of our own country. And we still want to export things to other places. Our politics actually works on the basis that we all disagree about what we ought to do as a country democracy and his admission that the best we can do is make sure everyone is equally disappointed with the decisions that get made we're all so different we have such incompatible opinions about how everything ought to be done that we should have a big popularity contest and then the people who lose have to watch the people who won do everything wrong for the next five years at least and increasingly our country is beginning to feel like we have to watch everyone do everything wrong even if the people we voted in won The reason I wanted us to begin there is because we bring all that to the psalm that we had read today. And we particularly bring it when we see the word Jerusalem or the word Zion. That's why the title is The Way It Is. The majority of our culture now associate that latter word Zion with particular views about the modern state of Israel. Israel. And the majority of our culture only associate Jerusalem with a place of conflict between religions that we wish would just get along. But the vision of world events in this psalm is so alien that you'll notice even the translators of this version of the Bible have to explain it or tone it down a bit. There are five footnotes in this psalm for a seven verse psalm. That's a lot. (laughs) And constantly explaining all the things they've done just to kind of make sure that we don't get the wrong idea. But when we listen carefully to this psalm in the context of the scriptures, verse 3, it gives us a vision of the future full of glorious things. And those glorious things are not one nation imposing their glory on all the rest. And they just have to like it because that nation's more powerful than the other. This is said by the nations. The glorious things are said by everybody. The psalm talks, you remember in the war in Iraq, hearts and minds, or Afghanistan, do you remember that? Now, we we didn't succeed in that, and that was why it didn't work. Well, this psalm talks about all the hearts and minds of the nations being genuinely united in a common vision of the city of God, Zion. Verses 1 to 3, church is the city of God. Church is the city of God. Now, uh, I couldn't think of another way. I nearly gave Simon a different version to read, uh, the Josh Bailey version, which is probably no. None of you want that, but I'm afraid you're going to get a bit of it now because it. They tried. It just. It doesn't do it right. It doesn't do it right. And the the trip is the first verse. Okay, so just see the difference. Uh, We're going to dig into it a bit. So here we go. Hebrew and Greek. They they have both options and they didn't go with either of them. I don't know what they were thinking. Okay, verse one. His foundations are in the holy mountains. Verse two, the Lord loves the gates of Zion above all the dwellings of Jacob. And verse three is fine. Okay, but the first two are really not. And See if you can see why. We've got to go to all that Hebrew Greek stuff because it is so important that it is mountains, not a mountain. Like many Christians, since this psalm was penned, the translators are trying to make these verses about the city on the mountain Zion. First, the ancient nation, so Zion is the city of David. It's it's the mountain that he decided to found his capital. You can read about it in uh, 2 Kings, no, 1 Kings, I can't remember. 2 Samuel 11, I think, or something like that. No, sorry, I should have written that down. Anyway, 2 Samuel-ish. But that can't be right if it's mountains, not mountain. The vision here is of a city that is somehow in several different places. From what we read later in the psalm, that becomes even clearer. But even from these first verses, we're not talking about a city that is visible on earth. It precisely does not say, verse 2, that God loves the city of Jerusalem, more than any other city in Israel. Jerusalem, the geographical place, is only special in the tradition that gave us and preserved for us the Bible because it was the first place for something that now happens in many places. When we see holy mountain in the Bible, we are to think Eden, the mountain of God, the place where God and his people were together rather than divided. And many mountains have been that. Horeb or Sinai in Exodus with the burning bush that wasn't burning, that was called the mountain of God. Shiloh, the first place the tabernacle got set up in the book of Samuel, was called the mountain of God. Even before that, Seir, not even in the national boundaries of Israel. In Eden, like Jacob's brother, Jacob and Esau, where he went and all his descendants went, that was called the mountain of God for a while. And the tabernacle that ended up in Shiloh, that was a bit like a portable mountain of God. I think Jesus might say something like that when he says about moving mountains by faith, because wherever the tabernacle was, that was the mountain of God. The point is not the particular geographical outcrop of rock. The point is what's at the top. And there have been several that opened up into heaven where Jesus sits at the right hand of God. The thing that makes them the mountain of God is not the human culture or tradition or all of us thinking it's that. It's the choice of the living God, Jesus Christ, to come down there, sent by the Father. That's why... Matthew chapter 5, there was another mountain unnamed from which a sermon was preached by this same living God. That's why Mount Tabor was the holy mountain when Peter, James and John went up and saw Jesus standing with two other people and looking not like they'd ever seen him look before at the transfiguration. The future that this psalm looks forward to includes all of that Testimony to all these different places that have been the holy mountain, the mountain of God. But a wonder of wonders, the holy mountains this psalm has in mind are just behind me. You notice, it goes up. It doesn't go up very far. It'd be quite hard to call that a mountain, wouldn't it? You know, how much are you going up? Like a foot? <laughs> you know? And then this altar... It's raised from the floor. We don't all eat bread and rind sitting on the floor with our legs crossed. There's a reason why we don't. This goes up. Everything about church architecture makes you look up. Because this psalm is looking at all the holy mountains that will be in ordinary places all across the world. That's why there's more than one. Churches, particularly at the sacrifice of the Eucharist, the fulfilment of all the sacrifices of the tabernacle and the temple on Mount Zion, the mountains of God in the past. Every single church building and the people who gather around it are holy mountains, places that stretch all the way up into heaven. That's why the foundation point is important because a foundation is on the ground. So the foundations are in the holy mountains means the bit on earth Goes all the way up to the top. All these different places lead all the way up to heaven. That's why the Lord loves the gates of Zion. Not because he's obsessed with a tiny bit of land in the Middle East. The Lord loves the gates of Zion because the gates of Zion means the church. The Lord God has chosen to make himself known. When his people meet together around altars. Places that go up. It can't be in one place anymore. Zion is the city that has gates. But no borders. The gates are baptism. But once you are inside. You discover the inside is the whole cosmos. Including the heavens. The idea of being safe in a city. And the cities in the ancient world always meant walls and always meant not getting killed by barbarians. That's what it meant to be in a city. It wasn't just, oh, the rat race, you know, the big smoke, all that kind of stuff. Or paying the u when you go in. You know, it's not that kind of thing. It's safety, protection, community. But this city doesn't depend on a giant wall keeping people out anymore. Keeping people out anymore the true spiritual enemies who deceived humanity into the mess that we described at the start with no real vision for the future and everyone arguing about it all the time, well, these demons are robbed of their power and kept back by the gates. That's the point of baptism. You you wash away all the power that those spiritual forces have over everyone inside. And it means, if that's the way you get in, literally all kinds of people can be part of this city. Without it becoming some kind of monoculture or with everyone being culturally imperialized to get in. So, if church is the city of God, verse 1 to 3, after that interlude, which is a good translation actually, of that bit, this is the bit where you pause and think. So, that's why I've divided it that way. Next bit, verse 4 to 7. Church regenerates every culture. Church is the city of God and church regenerates every culture. Okay, a little bit more translation. Sorry about that. There are five nations mentioned in this section. And I'll I'll say what they've said, Egypt, Babylon, Philistia, Tyre and Ethiopia. And you'll notice if you look at the footnote, uh, the word Egypt isn't in there. It's Rahab, which we'll explain about in a minute. And and that doesn't mean you have to kind of locate those places on an ancient map and think, okay, well, the church is going as far as Africa in the south, Mesopotamia kind of in the east and the Levant and then like the sea and maybe a little bit like of sort of uh, uh, Eastern Europe. That is where it got started, but that's certainly not what this means. These nations are arranged in two pairs with a centre, which is a very Hebrew way of arranging things. And each of them means something. So Rahab, Egypt. You'll see there's a chaos monster. Do you see that? A sea monster that represents chaos in your footnotes. It's good to read the footnotes. I know it's tiny print and everything, but it does give you a useful information. The idea there is un- sort of civilized human society, like the sort of out in the wild thing, maybe a little bit the Wild West, but even more so kind of people living without cities and technology and all that kind of thing, of which there are still plenty of people who live that way increasingly it's all being subsumed into cities that's one of the things that we've seen in the last few hundred years everyone has to be in a city but once upon a time you went and lived out you know in the sticks there are still people who live like that in northern canada now or in other places so that's the thing kind of untamed slightly anarchic human ways of living but then you've got babylon which is like the mega city that's everything civilised and technological and internet and all that kind of thing. That, that's what that is. It's humans doing their very best to build, like, super mega corporations and giant government buildings and all that kind of thing. So you've got two contrasts there, the kind of very back-to-basics way of human living and the super-tech, high-tech, civilised way of living. So there's one pair. That covers a lot, doesn't it? Uh, then you've got the next pair, and we'll come to the middle one in a minute. Uh, Tyre, which is basically Amazon. Every time you see Tyre, think Amazon, think Google, think mega, super, national, multi globe spanning corporation, because they were the the nation's supermarket. You could buy anything in Tyre. That's the point. So this is the way of organising human society, as ours does, around commerce. But then you've got Ethiopia, which is really mystery and distance and strangeness. It's the back of beyond. It's people who are completely not like us. So you've got very friendly, who are going to buy it, send you, sell you a nice robe or a bar of gold or something. And then you've got people, who have no idea who they are. I met one once, but I never saw them after that. You know, the, the, the sense of other that we have when we meet in another country. And then finally, the one in the middle. Philistia were the enemies. They were public enemy number one for Israel. So you've got uncivilized, civilized, commerce, mysterious, and enemies. And really, within that, you've kind of got everyone. And you've particularly got everyone. If you're standing in your own culture and looking out at everybody else, these are the ways we actually think about people who are not like us. I know we've got this globalist thing, and it's multiculturalism, all that kind of thing. But sooner or later, you will have in your heart, when you meet somebody who doesn't speak the same language as you, doesn't do things the way you do things, you will think things like this about them. That's the thing that we acknowledge in the Bible. We're factual about that. So this is written to the church in Israel, addressing the nations they were looking out on. And every single one, even public enemy number one, gets to say they're born in Zion. Now that's factually impossible if we're talking David's capital and the place where the Dome of the Rock is today. I was not born in Jerusalem. I don't think any of you were born in Jerusalem. There are very few people who were born in Jerusalem now. And also, it doesn't really make sense, this citizenship thing, that you could be a citizen without being born in Jerusalem. It happens all the time. Uh, So famously, Uriah the Hittite, that guy who really has a very bad rap from David, if you know the story, that is 2 Samuel 11. He, He is a Hittite, meaning a Canaanite, and yet he's included in Israel. There were lots of people like Egyptians, Assyrians, Edomites, who ended up in the nation of Israel. The way you did that was mostly about which God you worshipped. So it was easy to be part of Israel, but you had to change your religion. You had to kind of change a bit of your culture to be there. But this goes further than just deciding to sort of change allegiance. It says people from all over the world, from every extremity of difference, were born there. Verse seven goes further. They derive all their joy, all their cultural vitality. It's not an accident. The music is there, which is often the biggest distinguisher of our culture. Everything that makes them who they are comes from this city of God. And that is why church is the answer to those horrible, angst-ridden questions that we started with, that our culture is asking right now about politics and our place in the world. That's why the disaster of multiculturalism and pluralism is parodying this. And this vision for church is what colonialism and cultural imperialism on the other side denies. When people from all over the world get fully into Christ's body, the church, when they worship around his altar and get drawn into Zion, the heavenly city, when they eat his heavenly food and drink his heavenly drink. They're citizens of Zion with their culture and differences. They remain part of Tyre, Babylon, Philistia, uh, Egypt and Ethiopia. I have recently spent time worshipping alongside Russians and Ukrainians in the same church, in the same building, praying for each other's countries. I know there are Israeli and Palestinian Christians who joyfully worship together. There are Christians in Yemen now who are caught up in the same disaster that all their compatriots are caught up in and yet are worshipping in the city of God. Yeah, Christians do fight and kill each other as well. But when they do, they're failing to be true to the vision of reality given us by our Lord Jesus Christ. There are some religions who when they start killing other people, they are pursuing the vision their religion gives them. That is Islam. However you look at it, many Muslims don't do it. But written into Islam is the way you convert people is by the sword. And there are plenty of other religions who have no qualms about that either. And if you don't believe that, ask Christians who live under countries that have that as the dominant religion. They're non-persons, according to that ideology. Now, secularism, other religions, democracy are not going to build Zion. Zion. That William Blake poem that we sing with the title Jerusalem will never happen the way that poem says. Bows of burning gold and chariots of fire and us building Jerusalem in England's green and pleasant land will make all the other nations jealous or scoff at us. Say what? That's Jerusalem. That's you know that people laugh at us now. Uh, the, The wonder of the world, our health service. Not really. You know, when Rishi Sunak did his address and said how world beating we are. He wasn't fooling anybody, was he? Like, if we try and build our own little corner of heaven, either people get jealous or people don't believe us. No, Zion, the city of God, doesn't work like our cities or nations. It never has. Church is the city of God. And church regenerates every culture. Therefore, to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, be ascribed all the glory, all the power, all the majesty, all the wonder, and all the worship, now and always and across every nation for all eternity. Amen.